Hey everyone, welcome back to the Saxa Podcast, The First Five Years. I'm one of your hosts, Agassi Rodriguez, coming at you from Clemson University. Hi everybody, this is Erica Aguiar coming at you from the University of Florida. Agassi, friend, how are you doing? What's going on? Girl, we're hanging in there. Happy Feb- February. We're in February. Yes, we are in February. Yeah. I had to just I had to just double check that for a second because, you know, the days of the week and the months of the year just all blur together. Uh, as we talked about, March last year was a total of like five months in a month. So yes. I'm really hoping that this March is not a repeat. But, you know, overall, pretty good. How are you doing, girl? Good, good. Happy Black History Month to everyone. Um, hopefully you're listening to this and getting really excited for what we're going to talk about today. We're, um, we are, I am, I'm speaking for everybody, doing pretty well. Uh, it, I feel like last week and this week were those weeks that just did not stop. And it, it finally, uh, someone put it really well, it finally feels like a traditional semester. And I mean, I think here at UF, our students are back on campus um, and we're doing real events. So it, it felt a little odd to be like, oh, I've got events that I'm going to. And I, it just felt a little different, but I'm feeling good. It is Friday, Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. Happy Friday, indeed. So we are excited. I am excited for this challenge word. Not that it's overly complicated, um, but because I'm just a big fan of this word. Uh, Erica, but your challenge word for this episode is snickerdoodle. Oh, inspired I love by a cookie. Snickerdoodle. Yeah. Yes, I'm currently drinking my coffee. I think I have a little sweet tooth, and I was like, you know what? I need something sweet for this this episode. So snickerdoodle, um, inspired, of course, by the cookie. Uh, but have some fun, friend. I will try my very best to not be hungry during this recording, but thanks for that one. That's going to be a little tough because it's really only got one definition. So unless we steer this conversation to sweets, I'm going to have to find perhaps an inorganic way to talk about it. (laughs) You believe in me. You believe in me. But everyone, welcome to, thank you. Welcome to the first five years, our podcast for new professionals talking about the trials and tribulations and excitement of being sort of a new professional in higher education. And as always, we hope to bring you some timely information based off of the calendar and time of year and providing a public voice for graduate students and new professionals in higher education and student affairs. And we're super excited this week, starting a little bit more with our job search arc. We are going to be talking faculty wisdom with Dr. Travis Smith. Now, Dr. Travis Smith earned a PhD in the Educational Leadership and Higher Education program at Clemson University, or sorry, a PhD in Educational Leadership and Higher Education. As a critical educator, he chooses to focus on inquiry, practice, and pedagogy, which I always say wrong, pedagogy, we'll see, that helps disrupt oppressive systems in order to support racially minoritized students. His research agenda is centered in Black student involvement, historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, Black education, and Black graduate students. Some of his previous work utilizes a variety of methodological, another word that I always get stuck on, qualitative approaches such as, oh, this is mean, phenomenology. I wish you all could see them laughing at my butchering of these pronunciations. Photo elicitation, photo voice, and critical participatory action research. Travis's work can be found in the Journal of Student Affairs in Africa, the Bulletin, the Journal of Ethnographic and Qualitative Research, and the Journal of Student Affairs. Travis is currently a clinical assistant professor and program coordinator of the student personnel in higher education program at the University of Florida, Go Gators. He ultimately hopes to become a university president of an HBCU. 
And Dr. Smith first fell in love with higher education while attending Alabama State University. There, he was involved in several student organizations such as SGA, the NAACP, Alpha Kappa Psi Professional Business Fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, and the Golden Ambassadors. What a resume. These student organizations afforded him the opportunity to serve others and allowed him to grow as a student, a leader, and a Black man. In 2011, he founded Unite Inc., which is a nonprofit that promotes leadership, scholarship, and social awareness. Unite Inc. currently serves the community through two initiatives, college preparation for high school juniors and seniors, and a freshman retention program at Alabama State University. Unite Inc. allows Travis to serve his life's purpose, which is educating Black youth. To date, Unite has assisted its high school seniors in accumulating $30.2 million in scholarships. They've been accepted to over 300 universities across the nation. And Travis is a proven fundraiser and has raised over $185,000 for the organization in the last six years. Please welcome friends and colleagues, Dr. T. Pew, 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 pew. Hello, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Thank you all so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. How many words did I just completely demolish in that reading? Zero. I think you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, I am not in a PhD program. And I think that that'll be uh, maybe my first class is just pronunciation of some of these, these words. Listen, phenomenology is a mouthful. I've had to I've had to consciously practice that one a few times in class, but, but that one's a that one's a tricky one, I will say. It is a tricky one. And before I say it, I always have to say it in my mind just to get it to roll off my tongue. If you can't tell, I have a really strong Alabama accent, so I will butcher a word really quick. Phenomenology. What was the other one? Oh. Pedagogy, but people say pedagogy, pedagogy, tomato, tomato. It really doesn't matter. Thank you so much. Love the validations. So yeah, so far loving the validation. So, <laughs> so welcome, we're Dr. here D. to talk about. Go, Agassi. <laughs> no, I insist, you Erica, you go. No, I insist. I insist that you go because I just talked a lot. <laughs> well, we are excited to, doctor, to talk to Dr. T, that was my little tongue twister, um, about the job search from the perspective of a faculty member and someone who, of course, is involved in faculty and research and really gaining their perspective as to like, what are some things that faculty folks might recommend as a part of the job search and maybe some ways to integrate the academics and the things that you're doing in your classes into what you do for your job search, how you prepare for that, and even how you talk about them in interviews sometimes, because you didn't spend a couple of years in a graduate program not to talk about it in a job interview. So how do you do that? Let's find out. But before we do that, Agassi, you know, I got to ask everybody, what is the best thing you ate this week? Dr. T, we'll start with you. Okay, no judgment. I had a chimichurri. Am I saying that right? For the first time? A chimichua. Tell us more. I'm I'm not sure think, that I know what that is. I think I'm really butchering the name of this food, but it's kind of like a burrito, uh, and it had like beans, fried refried beans, and chicken. Mine was really simple and guac. Am I screwing that word up? I think it's a chimichanga. Is yep. it fried right? That that thing. Okay, there you go. Big fan, big fan of the. You know what's better than a burrito? A deep fried one, absolutely. Yeah, that is it. And it was amazing. I forgot the name of the place. Um, I had to get DoorDash because I was working on campus. But yeah, it was amazing. So that's the best thing I had to eat this week. I love that. That sounds so good. Agassi, you are so right. If it's good and you want it better, you fry it. 
And I, I stick by that for most things. What about you, Agassi? What's the best thing you ate this week? Okay, so I do have to give hats off to my partner once again. I feel like every podcast episode has slowly become an appreciation of Carter, um, but it is true and it's accurate. He did make us dinner this week because, of course, again, I'm doing classes and I'm appreciative that sometimes he takes over the dinner. Um, but he made like a very simple, like just ground turkey, potato, almost chili thing. Um, and it came out super good. He was really nervous. He's like, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm like, well, I believe in you. I'm going to do my homework and be in class. So like, I believe in you. And it turned out really well. And once again, so proud of him. Um, but yes, that's the best thing I ate this week. Carter, drop the recipe. I want it. That sounds so good. And like nourishing and warm, especially because I know it's definitely cold in South Carolina. For me, the best thing I ate this week um, on Saturday, my partner finished his dissertation Still has to defend and everything, but like draft is in and done. So we got sushi to celebrate at our favorite place, which is Dragonfly. And it is just probably the best sushi I'll get in Gainesville. And I got this roll called the Mango Tango. And it's salmon and mango and sweet potato. And every time I get it, I look at the waitress or the waiter and I'm like, is this going to be good? And they're like, absolutely. And it's delightful. And it just brings my heart so much joy. So also just really love sushi. So that is the best thing that I ate this weekend. Probably the best thing I ate in a few weeks because it's been a pretty not exciting few weeks for that reason. I definitely feel that. We've been uh, thankfully cooking a lot at home. Uh, we actually realized yesterday that we've been cooking primarily at home for this past week and a half. And we're like, wow, look at us. Um, to the point where Carter's like, I'm going to get DoorDash tomorrow as a treat. I'm like, no, don't ruin it. But, you know, as a treat, it's okay. We, we can manage. That's why we have Less Starbucks for breakfast this morning. Well, as part of the breakfast, yes. I... Cheers to that, friend. Although I just went with the grande, you went with the venti. <laughs> that that was not a judgment, just saying. <laughs> just, I didn't have enough money on my Starbucks card for a venti, so that's why we made the choice we did. <laughs> well, thank you all for answering, and we're going to turn it over to um, our producer, Miles, for our Would You Rather section. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Excited to be here. Um, I have a couple of questions uh, for you. Um, the first is uh, inspired by Agassiz's virtual background. Um, if you had to, would you rather live the rest of your life on a bridge or on a cliff? I want to say bridge because I am scared of heights and I am also clumsy. And so I think on a bridge, I have something, I have a few more things to grab onto should I trip. And I'm sticking with that answer. Definitely a bridge. I can I, I I don't know why I sit around and think of stuff like this, but I always think about if a zombie apocalypse happened, how could I build my own community like under power lines because the, the land is already clear and you can see for miles or bridges. And so I could, you know, I could easily see constructing an entire community, have a little gate on the bridge, you know, do some good fishing. Yeah, definitely a bridge. A cliff, mm -mm. No heights. That was so well thought out. I wasn't even in that general direction. That was so good. I would also go bridge just because I feel like it's not so bad. The sightseeing might be better on the bridge because you have like both sides. But I do love the idea like if a zombie apocalypse happened, you could fortify the area better. That is a good point. That's a great point. I had not, I definitely did not consider that. But I would yeah, also Dr. Go T, Dr. T, you came in with the <laughs> thoughts and the like laid out plan. And Agassi said, but what are the vibes? Like, what are we really feeling? 
Well, we, we need the vibes in the apocalypse. You know, I, I, I need to catch up on The Walking Dead, but we do need the vibes. Because I'll be watching The Walking Dead and I see, like, oh, I would have done this or I would have done that. And so they make really crazy deci- decisions sometimes, and it really bothers me. And so, yeah, that's why I decided to bridge. I support all of our answers. <laughs> Great question, Miles. What's next? Um, Travis, I uh, have had thoughts on every college campus I've ever been on about how to best prepare for a zombie apocalypse. So um, I think Agassiz knows there's a space <laughs> uh, Clemson's campus that is literally a nuclear fallout shelter because there's a nuclear facility close by. And I, I know he has heard me say many times that it would be that our, our former building that includes that room would be just really well suited, really well suited for zombie issues. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you hundred um, percent. Okay. Next question, it's my last one for today. Um, if you had to spend the rest of your life, I was thinking a little bit about stationery this morning. Um, if you had to spend the rest of your life and you could only write on paper with no lines or you could only write with a pencil. So one, you get no lines. The other one, you get no pens. Got to be a pencil. Which one would you pick? Hands down, no lines pen. I I think started writing fully in pen in high school and I've never looked back, unless it's math, because you know I'm really bad, so I had to always erase. So I would definitely use a pencil for math, but very committed to my pen. I would for sure use a no line. I think that'd be a little rough on you know the slant of the 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 notes, but definitely the no lines with the pen. I'm gonna have to go with the pencil. Um, number one, I'm I'm a horrible, horrific speller. And so with the pen, if I have to scratch through something, I'm taking up space. And so I would rather erase. And my handwriting is so horrible that I would probably be writing on a continuing slope. And so I really need the lines, even though my letters still somehow find a magical way to fall off the lines. And so you never want to see my handwriting. I was definitely going to say pen. And unlined paper, because I have done this. This is a real example from my life. If I ever have to write on unlined paper, I just get a ruler. And I just write my own lines because my handwriting is so slanty. But I don't even know that I have used a pencil in the last year. Like I, I don't even know where I would find a pencil. I'm being dramatic, but yeah, slanty all day. That That's kind of, you know, that's who I am anyway. Just like, you know, not 100%. Anyway, I would do a pen. It's funny you say that, Erica, because I promise I was also trying to think back, do I own a pencil? Like, if I had to, like, if there was, like, a scavenger hunt in my apartment or office, could I, like, find a pencil? And I don't think I could. Like, I really, like, I think everywhere I just have, like, the pens and all that, Um, which is, you know, a little shout out to Miles, who specifically writes on stationery or notes that do not have lines. And I've always just been so impressed by the fact that he writes like in a straight line. And I'm like, how do you like fit all of this? And it's just so like straight. So, yeah. So talented Miles is. Well, I had a, uh, we wrote notes to our, I, I, we, I don't know why I said we, I wrote notes to our incoming graduate students this fall. And one of them said that my uh, note looked like a serial killer. That seemed to be the, the main takeaway. So, um, you know, to, to each their own, some people find it tidy and legible. Other people see it as a kind of, um, you know, symptom of some uh, troubling underlying condition. So 
anyway, thank you uh, all for your uh, for your answers. I'm going to duck out now. Um, and uh, Travis, thanks so much for being here. Well, now it's time to talk about what we were most excited about. So our content. So again, talking about the you know integration of you know your higher ed experience or, or your you know educational experience. I know that most programs talk about theory to practice, right? But I think. It's sometimes, especially if you went straight to grad school and you're looking for that first professional job, or even if you're looking for a new one, I know for me, especially I sort of for, not forget what I did in grad school, but the integration can be really tough in a good way. So um, our first question for you, Dr. T, is how can professionals or graduate students best prepare their materials for an application, for a job application? No, that's a really great question. Um, and so if I get really philosophical, please reel me back in uh, because that's not who I am, but I want to prove a point. Uh, so number one, you have to really adjust and shift your mindset. And so I think a lot of times we do our students a disservice by talking about the job application process as an event. And it's not an event, it's a process. And so I think the first, the very first thing you have to mentally adjust your mind to say this is going to be a process, a lengthy process, specifically for our graduate students. Um, and so I, I think back into my job search for the faculty role and my job search really started a year before. And so I tell everyone the year before you should be looking at the job postings to see what's currently out there to see what qualifications people want to um, hire for. And that gives you a year year to do that. And so I was able to, I maybe went a little, little extreme, but I was able to actually see what who was posting positions and what they were requiring. And so then I took it a step further and I also stalked folks on Twitter and I saw who got hired. And so when I saw who got hired, I went and looked at their CVs and compared it to mine right now. But I only did this for, uh, people that were comp to me. So people that were coming fresh out of college, not professors or folks that had already been in the field and relocating because their CVs is uncomparable to mine. And so then I noticed like, okay, cool. For the most part, I'm about 80% here. But over the next year, I created a plan to get to where those folks were or a little bit ahead. So if they had like two publications, I wanted to kind of do two more. Right. And so I was able to kind of create a plan for that next year. And so I went into the academic year with a plan of job searching and a plan of a process. And so that really kind of helped me from a mental standpoint to not get bogged down and not get overwhelmed. And I see a lot of students get overwhelmed in this process. So that's kind of like the mental state. Um, and then the next piece is like a task oriented piece, work smarter, not harder. So I'm a type of person, I'm chopping everything up. If I have to drive four hours, I do a one hour check, a halfway check, a one hour check, and then I'm there. And so I say that all of my grad students who've taken my classes will hear me say 15 minutes a week on your CV or your resume will do you justice. And so in doing so, that allows your CV or your resume to automatically be ready at all times. And so you never have to sit there in a two to three hour session to actually get your CV or your resume ready. I'm going to use the word resume uh, for our professional graduate professionals. Um, and so it really it helps you to not be overwhelmed, but it also helps prevent mistakes. And so if you're having to sit there and do your resume in a three hour setting, two hour setting, you're prone to get exhausted and to overlook things. And so every, every week I try to set aside 15 minutes just to look at my CV and it could just be adding something. I keep a running notes tab on my iPhone of things that I've done in the office because a lot of times I've seen students undersell themselves on their resume. And so when I see their resumes, I say, 
hey, you did X, Y, and Z. You did this, you did that. You did this, why isn't it on there? And it's, oh, I forgot. And so that's why I tell students to keep a running tab of every project that you do, every accomplishment that you have within the office. And so that way you take that running tab in 15 minutes, you just update your resume and boom, you're done. And it's always updated. And, and note to any graduate student listening to this, always, has, always have your resume readily accessible. My resume is always on box so I can email it out right away if somebody asks for it. It's always on my email, the most current one. And so that really kind of helps engaging in this process of a job application. One thing I really want to highlight, especially for supervisors out there, I've supervised three graduate assistants now. And as they begin their second year, I always say, what are gaps that you have? What do you want to do? What, what are things you're missing? But I don't think that I really, you know, supported them in figuring out what that is, right? That's sort of an assumption that you know what everyone is looking at and I haven't given them tangibles. And I love this because if you're starting year two and you say, okay, what are some jobs that you want one year from now? What do you think you're missing? And actually giving them some, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to think of the words, but actually task related, as you said, is so much easier than this very arbitrary, what are you missing, right? I, I really love that that's boiled down into actionable steps. And like, I'm actually editing my grad resume right now. So this is really helpful. I've been thinking about, you know, looking at other job descriptions for people, you know, for entry-level jobs and making sure that they're hitting all their stuff. So that's, I'm just super jazzed because that's, like, oh, that's such a good tip that I hadn't even thought about. Yeah, you know, one thing I was even just thinking about, as you were saying about like the 15 minute and just spending some time, like looking at your resume every week or like taking some time to just review it to make sure everything is updated. I think about how even when you're not job searching and you're professional, anytime you apply for a role in a professional organization, if someone wants to nominate you for an award and they need your resume and you don't have that ready to go, I mean, that could be difficult as well. So like, I think just, I think very much so, and I'll speak for myself. I got my job, was like, okay, cool. And I didn't look at my resume for months. And then when I was like, okay, now I want to start getting involved. People are like, okay, we need your resume. I'm like, oh gosh, I haven't looked at this thing in like eight months. I don't, there are things I have to do. And then you're like, as you, exactly as you were saying, you're kind of in this rush now to try to get everything together and you're going to overlook things. And I remember sending out my resume and thinking, man, I should have rewritten this part. Like, why did I keep that on there? And I was like, I, I was like, I guess I should totally miss it. Exactly what you were talking about. Um, thankfully, I, you know, I still ended up, well, I still got some, some involvement in professional organizations, but I do remember that moment, like, dang it, that, that might break me or that might be the make or break for sure. No, that's real. I, I, uh, I learned this the hard way because I, I was that and I was forgetting to update my resume and it's just such a tedious task. And so now is to the point where like if I get a conference presentation notification at that moment, I put it on my resume so I don't forget. And so it's always updated. It's just easier to maintain than it is to revise. And so that's the kind of takeaway. Uh, your, your goal should be to maintain your resume. It's kind of like a car, right? You want to do the maintenance with the oil, keep the water in the car, keep your tires rotated and balanced versus I'm not doing that and the car breaks down. So it's going to cost you more time, more energy and more resources to actually get the car back up and running versus if you just would have maintained it along the way. 
That is a perfect analogy, metaphor. I forget what the differences are to it. That is a perfect example, for sure, of like the, the casual maintenance. If you do a little bit here, a little bit there, for sure, it can definitely reduce, I think, the exactly what you're talking about. It can reduce the, the feeling of overwhelmingness that folks feel because it's like, oh my gosh, now I have to redo this entire thing. It's going to take me so long. I have to sit down. I have to figure this all out. Like the casual maintenance, absolutely. Agassi, before you ask the next question, I do want to just throw this in. If you are listening today, you haven't taken your car to get an oil change since before the pandemic started. I would just like to encourage you to do that. I know that you might not have been driving it, but um, as someone who does not take care of their vehicle and as someone who has a car that only has three handles, I'm just going to just drop that in real quick. Here's some, here's some life stuff. Edit your resume and maybe get your car done. The people need the support, Agassi. The people need the reminder but people also need to know which of your handles is missing, Erica. It's my passenger side. It's fine. <laughs> it's like literally off. It's like in my what glove compartment. That's this podcast is not about me and my inability to be a real human. What's the next question, Agassi? Okay, awesome. So. <clears throat> You know, a lot of folks or many folks out there job searching, you know, either in grad school or beyond really sometimes struggle, you know, and Erica mentioned this a second ago, with how to tie in their academic experience into like their professional experience and like bringing those two things together. I know graduate students obviously in a lot of programs really have opportunities to have assistantships and have like direct experience working in student affairs and higher ed. Um, and of course, they have their coursework. So how is it what is the best way that some of those two things can come together in interview questions um, when folks are talking to interviewers and, you know, actually interviewing for these jobs? Yeah, that another great question. I think I'm going to speak to folks that are interviewing first and then speak to the students. We have to normalize or get a, we have to get away from asking theory questions in an attempt to measure intellect. And so that's been the false sense of you know, people's intellectual ability in asking theory questions. That should not be the, the premise, the underlying premise of asking theory questions. And so for students, don't feel that you have to cite theory just to prove your intellectual capacity, because that's also false. But it's, it's not your fault that you're having to do that. It's because you've been asked to do that. And so one of the things I think uh, I would say for students that uh, want to cite theory in their paper, cite theory with an example. And so don't just cite the theorists or don't just cite the framework, cite the framework and say, this is what it will look like for me in this position. And so these are maybe two, one or two examples of how I will include Schlossberg's theory or whatever theory you use. And I think I, I uh, looked at critical consciousness from Rose and Black or Yoso's culture, capital wealth. I included that, but I also talked about how I want to incorporate that theory into my class, into assessment, into formative and summative assessment, and how I measure, how I incorporate it to make sure everyone um, has an opportunity to feel included. And so I would just say, if you feel the need to cite theory, cite theory, the rule for me, I want to see theory and I want to see a practical application of the theory, not just the theory alone. And I'm okay if you never cite theory, because I, I can read and I can ask you questions of your practical application and I can see if you understand the theory behind it. That's totally fine. If you can tell me you can do X, Y, and Z, I don't need you to name X, Y, and Z as this high, this theory in the philosophical terms. Because at the end of the day, students don't care if you know the theory or not. They care, if, can you apply it? And so for me, that's my kind of approach in regards to connecting theory to practice in the interview process. I, I love that too, because 
that's something that you can prepare right now for those of you listening, right? You, I think it's really hard to just try to think of, you know, how to, how do I talk about Schlossberg or Baxter Magolda or whatever it is. But if you can prepare, you have a job description in front of you. If you're applying to something, copy that down. And, you know, you know, there's big buckets of things you'll be doing. You can probably make one or two that you have that practical application. And I think that that is the point where people get disconnected is that they're like, well, it feels weird to just arbitrarily talk about a theory. But if I can actually talk about, you know, Baxter Magolda's theory of self-authorship is one of my favorites, especially working with first-gen students. I know how I can actually put that in and I see it every day in my work. But just to say, I like this theory. It doesn't tell us anything about your ability to do a job. It really doesn't. And I appreciate you separating, utilizing theory in, in, in an interview setting from intellect because those are not the same thing. And I am just really glad that you said that, um, especially from a faculty perspective, which is huge. And, you know, something else I was thinking about as I think more about theory and, you know, I'm actually currently in a theory class. So I feel like I'm like right now, like in the in the weeds of like talking about theory and something I, I've thought about a lot is that theory doesn't always have to be this like direct. Oh, I use this theory for this program. Like it could be, again, how do you come to understand your work? How do you approach your work because of theory? You know, you, if you're able to say like, you know, I really spend a lot of time grappling with this theory and it's really changed how I approach conversations with students. It's changed how I think about like the role of like XYZ thing in higher education. Like that is you incorporating theory into your work. It does not always have to be, oh, I use the social change model and I created this leadership program and here's the, the program that came out of that. That is great. That is a direct application, but it is also theory is also helping to inform your perspective, your ways of knowing the ways that, again, you approach topics. So it doesn't always have to be, I use this theory in this program and here's what it was. Yes, those are great. Those are direct applications. But again, theory is much more than just, I used it in this program. It is how you approach things. Again, it's how you talk about things. I know even in my theory class right now, I'm really not struggling. I'm like really grappling with the way that I approach certain topics related to like communications and media. And like, that is like, I've talked about this with Erica and Miles very much. It's like turning my head upside down. It really is. And like in all the best ways. And again, like that would be something cool to talk about. So, you know, I came to this conversation thinking this program thinking one thing and I started working with this theory. And now here's where I am and here's where I've grown. Again, it's you thinking and using theory, but not in the direct, like I put it in this program and here's the program. No, that's real. I, I love to see when people use theory um, to describe or elaborate on how they approach their their work, their epistemological stance, and how they come to know, and and how knowledge is how these these philosophical beliefs inform their their knowing, right? And so I, I love I I honestly would prefer to see that versus the cliche theory practice you know piece because it just it sounds just so cliche and so. This is what I supposed to do. Like I, I really think that students should do uh, a better job of telling their narratives and telling us who they are. And I think theory is a great way, especially critical frameworks. As myself, I identify as an anti-oppression scholar, and so I love to to cite various theories to say this is how I come to see my work in the classroom, my research, and my service. And so it really, it really kind of helps me give name to what I believe. I also think that, you know, more and more we are, you know, trying to help people understand, at least for me, that you don't exist as a scholar and then as a practitioner and then as a human, right? You are all of these things. And so answers like that or information or lenses like that 
help us as, you know, hiring people or, you know, whatever capacity you're in, really just see how you are as a human and see like, can you do a job, but also like, who are you? And I don't ever want someone to be like, well, in my work, I just do this one thing because I am also looking for a colleague and some, like, I just don't believe that we can put people in boxes. So I had not really heard that perspective until you all talked about it. And I'm really jazzed about it and excited and um, <laughs> want like lots of examples for, you know, the next time I'm job searching because that we'll talk offline because I feel like I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I even going to say? I don't even know. So that's just really helpful. Um, and on the flip side of that question, have you had any experiences with people interviewing or, you know, just in examples of people doing too much with theory that they're, you're just like, all right, this is not really connecting or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, if I, if I'm reading your cover letter and your cover letter reads like a manuscript, then I'm checked out. Like that's, 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 that's it for me. Like if you're just going to cite people uh, for the hell of citing people and citing theory for the hell of citing people, that's way too much. I, I'm lost. You know, I, if I want to read a manuscript, I would have went and found a manuscript to read. Um, and so I think it's important that you, again, you do what is needed to express what you're trying to express. And so I don't, don't, I don't want to put a number to it, right, uh, a measurement to it, but I think you have to just do whatever it, you need to convey the thought without overly trying to say that I'm academic enough. And, but that's not the student's fault because these, you know, hiring folks in these academic positions, you know, or, or the, the academy themselves have, again, somehow tied theory to intellect a theory to academic promise, and that's just not what theory is for. And so I think to students, I would just say, be intentional if you decide to cite a theory. And, and once you complete your cover letter, uh, go back and read it and say, did I need to cite the theory? And if you did not need to cite the theory, then don't cite it. And so that's something like a kind of check and balance piece. Like, can I convey my thought without citing the theory? Or do I just need to cite the theory uh, to convey this thought? No, and I think one thing that's important to note there, and, uh, you know, I know Dr. T just really mentioned it with his example of, um, you know, rereading the cover letter and just like, almost like questioning and like, almost confronting like, is this a lot? Is this, and more importantly, is this me? You know, cover letters, you know, I know there's a lot of debate on, you know, our cover is good. Should we do away with them? Death to cover letters, all these wonderful conversations about cover letters. I am team cover letter. I enjoy reading cover letters. I feel like there is something really cool about the way that people can take kind of an established structure and make it into their own, which is what we're doing in a lot of senses. We're doing that with resumes. We're doing that with cover letters. We're doing that, you know, we're working within structures that have been explained to us or taught to us and trying to say, okay, how can I make this me? And I think what something that Dr. T was mentioning about like examining, do I need to cite this? It's something else you should question is, does this sound like me? Or does it sound like some like I'm trying to do be someone that I'm not? Because at the end of the day, and I say end of the day a lot, you know, you really have to question: Is this authentically me? Am I portraying who I am? If someone else read this, would they grasp the kind of person that I am? Or does this seem just such a foreign identity to me that like I don't even feel like this person who wrote this thing is like me? Um, and again, that's part of this job search process is that you have to work within government like structures that are set in place, but how do you portray who you are and what you bring in an honest and authentic way? And if, again, if you're trying to cite 15 different scholars in your cover letter, 
again, is that being you, are you doing justice? Because there's only so much space you have to talk in a cover letter. And if you're talking about other people, I don't think you're talking about yourself and you do need to bring it back home. Yeah, it's like a big old general retweet to that one, Agassi. I, yeah, I, I have nothing to add because yes to all of it. So some very good tangible tips I'm excited about. Um, so also sort of related, can you think of maybe one, we'll say academic, but you know, whatever you're thinking, mistake that you see people make in interviews that you're like, we need this to stop. My biggest, the biggest mistake and my biggest pet peeve really builds off of Agassiz's last point is the, the, the idea of not being authentic and folks show up how they think they want the hiring committee, uh, for how they think, you know, they want the hiring committee for them to show up. And so I tell people regardless, just be you. My biggest thing is I preach authenticity. So just be you, show up the way you know how to show up and don't perform. Like too many times I've seen people come who were, I, I believe are great candidates, but they were performing versus actually just being themselves. And so when they were performing, it was hard for me to get a genuine feel um, for what's the actual performance and what is actually them. And so I would tell students, don't be a robot and don't be a performer. Just show up, be yourself, be relaxed, and just you're interviewing us as well as, as well as we're interviewing you. And so just show us who you are and what you believe. And if somebody, a hiring committee doesn't accept that, that's not your responsibility. You're not responsible for how people think of you. That's their, that's their faults. That's their responsibility. So especially for people that are doing critical work, embrace that critical scholarship, embrace that critical identity and just show people because the last thing you want to do is present one way in an interview, you get hired and then you present one way where you show up and then it's going to be a big disconnect because who they thought they hired is not the person they hired and who you thought you were going to work for is not the person you thought you were going to work for. And so that is going to be a disaster uh, dumpster fire waiting to happen. Yes, all of it. I, I like the use of dumpster fire. I use it quite frequently in my own life. And I think that's, Again, I think getting at everything we've talked about is be authentic, be yourself. If you are a hiring person, you need to create systems that allow for people to do that, right? Because we can say all we want that you want to be, we want authentic people, we want you to be yourself. But if we're asking questions that don't allow that or that don't don't give people places to shine, we're, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to our candidates. So just, you know, one more thing that we can sort of think about as we, you know, I, I know I'm stepping into interviewing for our new grad assistants. So these are definitely, you know, some really good tips. I, I think we're obviously talking about the professional lens, but if you are an undergrad and you're applying to graduate programs, all of this rings true too. You know, it shouldn't feel entirely different for you. You might not know too many theories, so that's perfect. And that's, we, we want you to just show up as yourself and be really, really authentic with that. Any other thoughts, anything else we're thinking before we wrap up? I really love this conversation. I want to make sure, especially Dr. T, if there's anything else that you had burning in your mind that you wanted to get across that we can let our listeners hear that. No, I guess my final just piece of advice is a summative piece of advice is, is just to relax, uh, relax and, and don't get stressed out. So one of the things I see with students all the time, they are comparing themselves to other students. Uh, such and such has already had an interview. Such and such has already had a job. You're not in competition with anybody but yourself to present your best self um, to the hiring folks. And so I just want to encourage you and, and validate that you are enough. Uh, a job does not determine or define your self-worth. Um, you want to be in the right position. And so it's, it's important. 
I believe that we approach for you stu for students that are jobs searching for the first time in your first professional role. It's important that you approach this as dating, which means you're dating. You're not looking for marriage right now. You're open to marriage, but you're not looking for it. You're just dating. You know, I'm going to go to the movies with this person. That's okay. I'm going to go to out to eat with this person. I'm going to go to the park with this person. That's that's totally cool. And guess what? You can date somebody for a year. You can date somebody for two years. Don't don't be with somebody. Don't be with the institution just to be with the institution. If it's time for you to transition, as well as I, you know, giving a little bit of relationship advice, if you're in a toxic relationship, you need to get out. And so if you're in a toxic position at a university, you need to get out. Six months, a year, it doesn't matter. And so you have to do what's best for you because I'm I'm 100% sure that when you leave, they're going to post your job and keep it moving. And so hey, when you're looking for these first year, you know, first positions, be okay with saying, okay, I'm going to take this position and I only want to be here a couple of years. I'm not saying say that, but be okay with that in your mind in case you have to do something that is like in the 20%. I take it like an 80-20% like dating rule. 80% of what I like, 20% of what I don't like. And so I put up with the 20% for, you know, two years, max one year, and then I'm off to something else. People are always going to be looking um, to hire. And we know student affairs has a revolving door. People are always leaving the field. People are always getting promoted. So opportunity um, is there. And so I don't, I don't want students to feel like they have to take their first role and commit to four to five years. That's just not who my generation is, your generation is, and we're going to change jobs. And that's just the new norm. And so be okay with that. Retweet all of that. And I think that is a wonderful way to conclude our episode. Uh, thank you so much to everybody for joining us for the first five years presented by SAXA. Thanks, of course, to Miles Soret for producing this episode. And... And I guess myself for editing our episode. Eric, I think you were supposed to read that line, but I guess I'm just going to thank myself. Thank for you, Agassi, <laughs> for editing our episode so much. You're <laughs> sorry. I know. I'm sorry. That definitely was supposed to be. <laughs> I slipped that in and then I, whoopsie. It's okay. Um, if you want more information on SACSA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on the various social media outlets, you can find them on Facebook at Saxa, uh, Facebook.com slash Saxa fan page, Twitter at Saxa tweets, Instagram at Saxagrams. You can also connect with us on Twitter. You can find me at Agassy, that's A-G-A-S-S-Y underscore R. What about you, Erica? You can find me at, at Erica M underscore Aguiar, Erica with a C, very importante. And we've also got Dr. T on Twitter and IG at Dr. T underscore three, and that's T-E-E. -E. And we're excited to have you connect with him and to connect with us and to have such a good job search. Don't stress. You're going to do great things. And reach out if you have any comments, questions, relationship advice that you want to share. Maybe we'll do an episode like that one day. But thank you again, Dr. T, for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for listening.